Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Uh, today's cool fact of the day is about mastery and people who really have achieved a level beyond other people. And I look for masters when I interview people on Bulletproof Radio. And here's a cool fact about a master. Dr. Yoshiro Nakamatsu, who's the inventor of the floppy disk and 3,300 other patented interventions, is one of those unusual genius master level people. And he's also a biohacker. He hacks his genius by intentionally staying underwater until the moment just before he drowns. He believes it stimulates his brain. He actually invented a, a tablet so he can actually take notes underwater. And it turns out he's right. That kind of treatment stimulates your brain to make more capillaries. And when you get into that pseudo-hypoxic state, which is similar to what happens when you're doing the Wim Hof breathing method or Art of Living or something else like that, you actually can go into a theta state, which is where intuition and creativity happen. And when you put pressure on your head, you're actually making your mitochondria closer together so your electrons don't have to move as far. And they move an awful lot of times. So a tiny difference in how far they move equals better functioning brain. So this crazy guy paid attention to how he felt and what worked. And well, 3,300 patents later, you could say he's crazy or you could say he's a genius or you could just say he mastered it. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. 
Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's guest is someone who doesn't know it, but someone who actually probably saved my career, if, if not really helped accelerate my career way back in the day. So before I tell you who it is, I'll tell you a little story. I was 26 years old. I made $6 million at the company that held Google's very first server. When it was Larry and Sergey and one server and they needed to put it somewhere, they came to a company uh, where I helped to start the consulting group inside the company called Exodus Communications. And I found myself in short order being a 27-year-old attending board meetings for a company worth $36 billion on the stock market. I wasn't allowed to speak at board meetings, but I got to see them. And I attended executive staff with people twice my age and about 100 times my experience because my experience was only a few years in corporate America. I was an engineer with a little bit of Asperger's syndrome. And I used to describe my job as taking ideas that are crayon simple and redoing them in finger paint for executives. And I did not understand them. I thought they were crazy people. Truly, their behavior made no sense to a rational, logical brain. And then I picked up a book that absolutely changed my ability to, to, to do this, and it was called The 48 Laws of Power. And this was a book that had taken quite a while to write with a cultural anthropology, stories throughout all of history, looking at how people in power got in power and stayed in power and distilling the essence and it was one of the, the books that I will just never forget because I read this book and a week later, I sat in the executive staff meeting and I'm like, oh my God, these people are not crazy people. These people are powerful people. And the rules they follow are not engineering rules. They're power rules. And by learning that switch in my own ability to think about this, I learned how to function in Silicon Valley, how to work at a venture capital firm, how to raise money and how to do what I do at Bulletproof. If I didn't have those rules to make me stop thinking like a robot and start thinking like more like a chess player, I wouldn't have done it. So the author of this book is Robert Green, who is sitting here uh, on uh, YouTube, if you're watching the YouTube channel or on iTunes. So Robert, thank you for your work. That was like 15 yeah. years ago, but your oh. book totally changed my career, so thank you. Well, that's great to hear, Dave. Uh, I'm expecting a check any day now. <laughs> I mean, no, just kidding. That's a great story. Here's what your book didn't teach me how to do. Oh. So I mentioned uh -oh. I made $6 million when I was 26. I lost the $6 million when I was 28. No. So I'd, <laughs> I'd write you a check, yeah. but it, 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 might, it might have a decimal point at the beginning of the number. Oh, I uh, see. Unfortunately. Okay. But that wasn't your book's fault. That was actually no. you know, my, my own fault. And that's happened yeah. in Silicon Valley over, all, all over the place. And, um, and since that time, um, you've applied that similar incredible rigor to some other books like The Art of Seduction, looking at what happens uh, when people seduce other people, which is also very interesting how you characterize uh, the different uh, types of seduction that happen. Uh, the 33 Strategies of War and the 50th Law, which I just think is hilarious. You actually wrote it with rapper 50 Cent, which is, <laughs> which is super cool. <laughs> like what a mashup I wouldn't have imagined. Uh, and then most recently, Mastery, which is also a hell of a read. So you've just gone through over the past 20 years, pretty much ever since I've been working and just written these books that that distill knowledge in a way that no one else has been able to touch in, in, my, in my experience. So I, I want to ask you questions from each book in this interview. Sure. 
the intent is that for probably, my guess is about a half a million people will hear this interview uh, eventually. Uh, so I want to make sure that we add values. They get actionable things from each of the questions. And first question is, in the preface for the 48 Laws of Power, you quoted Machiavelli and you said, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. Why did you pick a quote like that? Because it's so completely true. And it, it, <laughs> it's one of the first quotes in the book and it kind of uh, distills my experience and why I wrote the book. Um, basically, I'm not a naturally manipulative Machiavellian type. I'm more of the naive, innocent type, particularly when I first went to work in, I've had many different jobs, but I started in journalism, I worked in Hollywood and many other places. And I wasn't the devilish Machiavellian type. And I made some common mistakes, such as never outshine the master, law number one. I transgressed that law and paid a price for it. And so basically the idea is they're out there, they're, uh, they're, people have come up with a percentage for how many very highly Machiavellian people there are. It's almost genetic, 5% less than that, something like that. Most people aren't like that. And most people need the 48 laws of power. They need to understand it. So for instance, if you're an artist or more of a creative type, you're going to think that, well, my talent, my creativity, that's going to what's is going to see me through in my career. And boy, are you naive because you're going to suffer <laughs> from all of the assholes out there in film or who, producers, who, the people who, who control the money, who control the power. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. So if you might be a good person, but there are a lot of bad people out there and the bad people tend to come get into positions of power. Um, and so it's a book to kind of arm you with knowledge, sort of like you helped you in those meetings. And I felt that that quote from Machiavelli just kind of summed up what I was trying to communicate. I definitely have come across that, that 5%, and oftentimes they do end up in positions of power. Yes. And, and you talk in The 40 Laws of Power about how Galileo worked with the, the Medicis. Uh, how does Never Outshine the Master actually come to play? Like, like what does that really mean? It means um, something very basic. So uh, people in power are human beings. They're not, um, they're not of a different uh, genetic code than you or I. They have insecurities. They feel um, that maybe other people don't respect them as much as they should. And so they're looking at those around them through a, an insecure lens. And you're not aware of that. You think, well, that boss of mine, he or she is so powerful He's above all of those sort of petty things. And you will try very hard to impress that boss. You will work extra hard on a project. You will try and befriend everybody else in the office. And you're not aware that in the process of doing that, you might be making that boss feel insecure, as if this younger person, 10, 20 years younger, is smarter, is more hip, people like him or her more, you're a threat. And you're not aware of that because you think, well, work, it's all about doing the best job. No, because whenever you put three people together, politics intervene. So that person, that boss, is looking at you going, is this person a possible threat? Is he, making, is he or she making me look bad in comparison? 
through that lens, they might decide, I don't like this person. He's maybe, or she's maybe too smart for the job. I don't trust them. I'm going to fire them. And when they fire you or they demote you, you never know why. They'll never admit that it came from outshining. They'll never admit that envy was maybe the root of it. They'll say, they'll come up with an excuse. Something about your personality, something about you not fitting in, not being a team player, whatever the bullshit is. They'll come up with an excuse for why you were fired. And so therefore, this is a classic example of what I said. People who are creative and talented aren't aware of these kinds of things. So you are inadvertently perhaps digging your own grave by trying too hard. And what I talk about in mastery, I kind of go through this. Really, when you first enter a job, you want to do kind of what I call the Benjamin Franklin strategy, which is mute your colors, not be so, so brilliant, fit in, uh, look like someone who works hard but isn't a threat, be a master observer, and you're going to find in the end you'll have a longer and better career. The Galileo method is sort of the reverse uh, perspective on that in that what he did um, in naming the first, uh, the Jupiter planets that he discovered through the telescope was he named them after the Medicis. He made his master look greater uh, than, uh, than is humanly possible, associating the Medicis with these planets. So instead of making yourself look good, which is what you would normally do without thinking about it, you want to make the boss, the master, look brilliant. You want to make them feel even greater. There are many ways to do that, and that's like a that's like power of a higher level. Not outshining is mass, is power one hundred and one. Going to the level where you actually literally learn how to make the master feel greater about him or herself is an, another level that will eventually help raise you up. When someone gets fired for outshining the master. Do you think that these Machiavellian masters have admitted to themselves inside their head that that's why? Or do you think it's just a vague feeling of discomfort so they just kind of swatted it? Well, two things on that front. In the game of power, uh, I tell people, it doesn't matter. Who cares what's going on in their head? All you know is you were fired. Uh, fair um, point. You know, so that, that's the game. You know, you're playing chess. The guy moves the king in, 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 in a very bad way. Well, what was going on in his head? You don't care. You just, it's a bad move. I'm going to counter it. But, I mean, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I don't know. I think in some cases, of course, the master is aware that, that there's envy involved. I'm, in my new book, I have a whole chapter on envy. It's, oh, an ins, it's an insidious emotion. It's the most insidious emotion of them all because yeah. the moment you feel it, you try to disguise it. So you're, you're going to tell yourself, you feel a, pin, a, a twinge of envy for that younger person who might be more talented, but then you're going to immediately justify that emotion by saying, well, actually, they're not a good person. They're aggressive. They're assertive. They're blah, blah, blah. And so you're going to cover it up. So the boss either is a little bit aware or maybe to the point where they're not even aware at all because it, it operates very quickly, this sort of covering up, the, because we don't want to admit to ourselves, particularly a boss, that we feel insecure. The, the reason I ask is that uh, I, I am a CEO and Bulletproof is a rapid-growing oh. venture-backed company. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, amongst my, my friends in Silicon Valley 
is that the people who can hire the absolute rock stars and allow them to shine uh, are the ones who create companies that, that outperform. So, so the, the act of being a CEO is an act of self-awareness. I, I do a lot of neurofeedback. I run a neurofeedback like institute for training my own brain primarily uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so that I can become aware of when like what's actually going on in there. Like, do I believe oh. the story I told myself? So I, I'm kind of putting this on as if you are the master, how do you avoid being an asshole? <laughs> I don't know if that, I don't remember that rule, but I would love to know the, the antidote for that. <laughs> Well, oh God, you know, I could write a whole book about that. And, yeah. uh, and please kind do. Of, I kind of, I'm kind of am, but, um, you know, it, 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 a lot of it depends on, on being result oriented, um, and not being inward looking where you're thinking about your ego and how other people perceive you. And what you want in the end is to make more mm-hmm. money and to have a more successful company. Uh, I know, uh, for instance, in one of my books, I talk about uh, General Patton in the 33 strategies of war, very brilliant strategist, mm-hmm. kind of a difficult person, but a brilliant strategist. And he kept coming up against this thing where he was brilliant, probably the most brilliant general we had in World War II. And he kept being blocked um, in, in, in his career uh, by people like Eisenhower and Bradley because he was a bit abrasive. And he kept thinking, well, don't results matter? We're at a war where, pe- <laughs> where lives are at stake. Shouldn't my my strategic genius be more important than my personality? Well, even in war, there are people who care more about their ego, about how they're perceived by other people. If I were to build a monster CEO, and Machiavelli talks about this, it would be someone who's extremely adaptable, extremely fluid, doesn't have preconceived notions, is open in the moment, kind of a Zen sort of thing. And is completely realistic and results-oriented. So if you're an angel investor or you're a CEO, your game is to make as much money as possible. So you want to hire somebody who's highly creative. It is possible that you're going to make a mistake and you're going to hire a snake in the grass, someone who's not only brilliant, but is very ambitious and is actually looking to take your job away from you. There are scenarios like that and maybe it doesn't apply to you but you often people will hire that kind of snake who in the end is a real threat and does sort of ruin the company or take things away from them so you have to be very clever and you have to see people see through people and be able to judge their character but in the end if you are fluid if you can learn from your mistakes and you can be realistic and care more about results than your ego that would be the monster ceo so the, the ego awareness is the core, and, and that's the very core of, of the neurofeedback. Where I've spent uh, 10 weeks of my life now with electrodes glued to my head wow. uh, with basically a lie detector to tell me when my ego is in charge versus me, and I'm still not done, but it, it's, yeah. uh, it's designed to, to create that Zen type of thing. Speaking of Zen, you're actually a practicing Zen Buddhist, right? Yes, I am. Um, does that influence your writing? Because, like, tell me about your Zen Buddhist practice. And, and well, I, I mean, that. I've been interested in it since I was very young, uh, but I've only been intensely practicing and meditating every day and, and going deep into it for about seven years. So I can't say that the 48 Laws of Power, because it, it predates pre- okay. the, the, the meditation, but I've been very influenced by the philosophy, by the thinking for many, many, many years, and certainly since I've begun the practice, which is mostly meditation, what we call zazen, but also involves, um, you know, I, I do go uh, 
to group sessions and I do read a lot and I have other ways of getting the knowledge. But the main thing is Zazen has, a, has had a tremendous impact on my writing, had a big impact on mastery and is having an even bigger impact on the book that I'm writing now. I am very excited to read your new book. There's, um, uh, there's great wisdom in, in the Buddhist practice and uh, even Bulletproof Coffee came, at, uh, the idea for it came to me on Mount Kailash uh, in uh-huh. western Tibet. <laughs> oh, so I, wow. I, was, I went there to learn how to meditate from the masters. Oh, so there's, my God. Uh, uh, th- there's definitely a connection there to the oh, ego awareness teachings that, that you're yes. studying. Yes. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is, it's not just um, book knowledge that matters. It's something very experiential. And in writing a book, um, I find the problem is sometimes, which is for anything, you tend to rely on um, cliches, on on um, formulas, and you're not alive in the moment. You're not thinking in the moment. You're not thinking for yourself. You're relying on kind of secondhand concepts that people have given you. And this practice has shown me, just like the man who puts himself in the water and nearly asphyxiates himself, has taught me how to be very alive in the moment when I'm writing. Um, it's a constant struggle. So it's had impact on me on many, many levels. Do you look at, at how the words feel when you're writing them? Uh, is that what you mean? I'm trying to, like, uh, so the new book, I'm trying to capture a certain essence, a certain tone, where I'm talking, the book's about human nature. And I have to be thinking and reflecting on what it is I'm actually saying and go to a deeper level and kind of connecting with the material instead of relying on abstract concepts. But the other thing on a more basic level is I'm a very audio oral person. So I'm literally mouthing the words as I'm writing. Um, so there's a spoken context to it, and, and I have to hear what I'm literally writing. I, I, the reason I'm asking is I just finished my, my third, or I guess this would be one, fourth big book, and hopefully my, my second New York Times bestseller with any, with any luck, uh, called Headstrong. And this book, I dictated most of it using the, the oh. dictation function on uh, just on my Mac. And there's something, I think that the Buddhist practices, at least the ones I'm familiar with, talk about you know, the, the power of the spoken word and you know, even oming and things like that. I, I, there's something different when you say it. And it's, it's interesting. So you're typing, but you're mouthing as you type. Yeah. And when I'm writing, I'm looking for a, the sensation in, like my, my, in my physical body. Like, does oh. the sentence feel good? Does, does it go in without a splash like, a, like a, a professional diver? But I've never really asked someone, and in your writing, I'll just tell you, your writing is incredibly complex. It's better than mine. <laughs> like, just as a, as a writer, I think I wrote a pretty damn good book, but no, it's, it's not at the level of yours. And I just want to know how you do it. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> well, I don't know how to answer that, but I, I, I can say... Um, that I don't do anything else, you know. I don't. Uh, uh, I don't have other jobs really. I yeah. do. I do some speaking. I do some consulting, um, but mostly this is it. So what do I spend my day at? I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And a lot of books, um, quite frankly, are written by people who are very distracted. I get the impression yeah. that they're very distracted. Yeah. They're a professor who's teaching, who's doing, who's grading papers. And then took six months off to kind of distill thoughts, but they're not really there. And it shows because the first chapter is kind of good. 
Second chapter is kind of getting boring and repetitious, and by the end, it totally peters out. They're distracted. I don't know what it is. I can tell a writer who's focused, who's really in the moment, who's really captured what they're trying to write. And, that, and there are people around today who, who do that brilliantly. I, I read a lot of biographies for my work, and there's some great writers out there who captured their subjects. Who are, but, who are two or three that stand out just off the top of your head, two or three writers who you think, I, I want to uh, read their books just to look at their style. <laughs> well, Robert Caro would be uh, on the top of okay. those for biographies, uh, the Lyndon Johnson books. Now, okay. you know, heavily researched, it devotes his whole life to it. That's all he really is. Well, he's done other books on Robert Moses, etc. But the level of intense focus that you can tell when you're reading it, but also the fact that he knows the subject. So, for instance, in, in my book on strategy, my version of the art of war, which is the 33 strategies of war, the main, the hero of that book is Napoleon Bonaparte for me. I thought he, I called him the Mozart of warfare. He was a genius the first 10 years of his career, a genius strategist. Nobody else can compare to him. And I gave myself the task, what made him more brilliant than others. N none of the writers I read ever really answered that simple question. What was the single source of this man's genius? Now, it took me a while. I read 12 biographies. I read a 1,200-page book on just his military campaigns. Um, and I felt like through that, I came to an understanding that the genius of Napoleon was he had a highly organized brain. He could assimilate massive amounts of information before the advent of computers, and he could organize it in his brain. So when it came time to plan a strategy or to adapt a strategy in the middle of a battlefield, the man had more information that he could access in his brain, and it was brilliantly mm -hmm. organized. Nobody else really ever said that. I mean, people alluded wow. to it. People alluded to it. But to say that in a simple sentence... Because if you think about it, the application is, is, is amazing. That is a highly creative skill, uh, something that could make anybody a Napoleon, is to be able to learn from that, to know that organizing your thoughts is a very powerful technique. Anyway, to get back to your question, wow. to get back to your question, through research and thinking, I dug deeper than I think a lot of other people did on that particular subject. You must have read Robert Asprey's biography of Napoleon as one of your 12 books. Is that, that, a, relative? Is that a relative? Yeah, he, he's you know, my great uncle. He, 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 I, he, ha I have that book. Yeah, I, I, I bet you would. Uh, he used to, he's I'm, kind I'm, of a I'm, crazy, crazy great uncle. He, lived, he would live for five years in whatever region he was writing a book about, all history, uh -huh. and get to know all the people, visit all the sites, and just obsessive, like Asperger's kind of runs my family. <laughs> I don't uh -huh. know if he had it or not, but super detailed work. This is your father or grandfather? Uh, this, this is, uh, uh, he was my uncle, so great uncle. Uh -huh, so, okay. yeah, it would have been like my uh, grandfather's. Oh, brother, I definitely really. read the book. It's, it's, it's very familiar. <laughs> I'm sure it was uh, good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, you've read uh, probably more books than me, uh, which is a lot. So, I, um, I, I would, they all come together for me. But any, anyhow, I, I was just intrigued when, you when I realized you dug that deep. You had to have read that book. So, all right, there's another, oh, oh, one quick story about organizing thoughts. There's, there are different people who will teach you, like, like Jim Quick is a good friend who, who teaches uh, speed reading. He's taught a lot of Hollywood, a lot of CEOs. That's so funny. 
I, I find that always funny. I collect these things where the name Quick is into speed reading. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> there, there's so many examples of that. I've got to put that in my list. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, K-W-I-K. Oh, just, oh, oh, I yeah, see. But, I but still, it, it's, it, uh, okay. it matches. And, and yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he does like the superhero thing. He, he taught uh, Wolverine, uh, you know, in uh, all the X-Men cast. Just, just like a, a, a fantastic human being. But he teaches some stuff like that. But I, I've looked at how I do, sometimes I, when I'm doing biohacking things, um, for fi- five years I ran the web and internet engineering program at the University of California when the internet was being built the way we know it today. So I was teaching engineers who were working the next things that were going to happen. And every night, four nights a week, I would do this for two or three hours after work. And I would sit down over dinner and I would read the latest trade and tech magazines, and I would have to assimilate the information, real like a lot of it, in like 45 minutes while eating a salad into <laughs> a teachable class. And I did this wow. for five years. Wow. And to this day, I believe that that ability to assimilate information has helped me so much because people ask me questions, I'm like, oh, and, and the memory structure, I know what it looks like. It's like a 3D weird thing in my head. And I, I, I don't I want to hold myself out as an example of excellence there, but I, I, I seem to be able to think about hacking the human body in a way that's different yeah. than most people. And I often think that that, just like drinking from a fire hose until it hurt and doing it over and over, probably helped me in my career. So. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it has. Um, yeah. All right. There's another law from 48 Laws of Power. I'd... I'd like to ask you about, and it, it's one that says, this is the only one I remember off the top of my head, which was to create loyalty, make an enemy. I might have paraphrased it wrong. Does that sound, sound <laughs> like one that makes sense? Well, law number two is never put too much trust in friends, and I think it's learn to use enemies, something to that effect. As a, this is one where the, the gist of it was, if you want to get someone close to you, you alienate them. And then you ask them for help. And because yes, they help that's, you. That's law number two. Okay, yes. cool. So I, I had a guy yeah. uh, in, in my career who, I, who perceived that I slighted him, but he wanted my knowledge on his team. So he sat me down in his office and basically said, I can't fire you because you don't work for me, but I'm going to drive you into the ground. Like, 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 essentially, it was nice working with you. Your persona non grata. This guy was two levels up in the orb for me. So it's basically like a death threat from a C-level executive. I'm like kind of shaking a little bit. But I'm like, I have a good boss and I do good work. So, uh, you know, I'm just not going to I'm not going to worry about this. So literally for six weeks, he would walk past me in the hallway and look the other way. And, and, and it was I was like, this is I, I didn't know what to do mm. with this. And then six weeks later, to a T, he comes and asks me for help. And without 48 Laws of Power, without that rule, he was totally playing me. He was like working to bring me into his sphere. Oh, oh. Right? And it was applied brilliantly. And this is one of the most Machiavellian guys I've ever met. And oh. actually, we're still friends. Like, like there's mutual oh. respect. And, and I've yeah. been to his house and all that. And, uh, but I just, that sticks out. If, well, if, if that rule hadn't been written, I'm telling you, I, I would have like walked into well, a chainsaw. <laughs> well, it's basic human psychology. So um, you can you can understand it on a even on a seduction level, if um, someone is too friendly with you and too outgoing and wants to please you, you initially have a level of not much respect for them. They seem to be trying too hard. Um, they're too accessible to you. There's an insecurity that you sense. But if the opposite happens and they're playing hard to get, 
and they seem to not like you and they seem to be distant, there's an element, I think it's chimpanzee brain taking over, but there's an element of, wow, you know, maybe something's wrong with me. Um, maybe I have to try and please that person. Anyway, if whatever's going on in your brain, the moment that person turns it around and comes to you, you respect him, there's a little bit of awe, you're completely moved by the reversal um, that they're suddenly now interested in you, and you're ready to eat out of their hand. If you could just apply that, like this man applied to you, think of the power that you have in an office or a situation, at least to not make yourself such a person pleaser, which actually turns a lot of people off. So it's just based on elemental psychology that I think 300 years ago, people kind of mostly understood. I, something shifted, and maybe it has to do with just likes on, on Facebook and you know, retweets or something, but it, it seems like that's a little bit harder to do on social. Do you think social media changed the 48 Laws of Power? No. Nothing okay. changes the 48 Laws of Power. <laughs> well um, said. <laughs> in my new book, I try and say, look, human nature has been in place, uh, well, you can't really say the beginning. I could go maybe a million years ago. I could go further, but let's just say... 20,000 years ago. There's a lot of history there, a lot of uh, generations of things going on um, where this human nature is biological and it's cultural, but the cultural aspect is not just the present cultural moment you live in, it goes back thousands of years. So when you take human nature and you create the internet, what happens is, in the beginning, people are going, wow, we've revolutionized the world, everything has changed. Everything's going to be communication, creativity, freedom of expression, blah, 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 blah. And what happens? After three, four, five, ten years, human nature transforms the Internet into what any, anything human has always been. Making money, power moves, trolls, yelling and arguing, irrationality. It becomes a garden full of all of the weeds of human nature that were there in the time of the Bible. So social media has not changed that. And you're asking about the aspect of creating friends and enemy type dynamic. I, that would still work on social media, I'm, I think. Still works. What does the 48 laws of power predict one could do with trolls? <laughs> well, <laughs> trolls exist in real life. They do, you know, absolutely. They're, um, they're, they're bullied in high school, and now, now they're, now they're yeah. loosed upon the world, right? <laughs> yes, and um, I call the, the equivalent of a troll in, in, in a boss situation is what I call the psychotic boss. It's not yeah. me who made it up. It's a, it's a well-known meme. But uh, the psychotic boss is basically somebody that anything you do is going to piss them off. You, <laughs> you try and please them, you're, 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 they don't like you. You try and push away from them, they don't like you. They've got issues and it's all about power and torture and they're sadistic. Yeah. And the, what you need with the psychotic boss is you need emotional distance. You need to not take things personally. If you're trapped in, the, in this, okay, you gotta deal with it. But if you can get out, quit your job. Is life worth uh, getting enmeshed in this problem? Well, you're dealing with a troll on the internet, walk away, it's not <laughs> worth it. If you, you know, the old Bible saying, Arguing with a fool will make you a fool. You know, you become a fool by trying to argue with them and get them to change their mind. Walk away from troll. Don't feed the trolls, as we say. 
But yeah. if you can't, if you're like enmeshed in them, then you need that Zen samurai ability to emotionally distance yourself, release all of the emotions in the drama, look at them in, a, in as objective a manner as possible, see that they're irrational, they've got deep problems, they're very unhappy, etc. If you get that distance from it, then you can torture them back. You can, you can give <laughs> them so absolute, oh, I don't care. Well, they deserve it. They deserve it. You can give the perfect uh, comeback that will really get into their skin. I don't do it as much as I used to, but on you know Facebook or whatever, I don't do much Twitter, but Facebook, you get those trolls and I just love saying something that I know will irritate the fuck out of them. But you can only do that if you're not emotionally invested yeah. in the argument. I used to get great pleasure from pushing troll buttons uh, like, like you, and, and there's an art to it that, that is, is mean, but I, I found that even though I had emotional distance from it, eventually my ego liked it too much. So of I, course, so of I course. It's, it. better, it's better to disengage <laughs> and not deal with them. I agree with but, you. But you had the, the, the pleasure in, in just one little sentence causing oh. fountains of... <laughs> oh, okay. I, you can't... You know, why deny that pleasure to yourself? <laughs> Life is short, you know, it's, it's fun. It's like, you could have cheesecake or you could bait the trolls. I, it might be more fun to bait the trolls. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, All right, that, that's hilarious. Now, you do talk about mastering your emotions. And, and uh, one of the things I, I work on if, I, if a troll actually does push my buttons is I work on feeling compassion towards them. It's like, okay, this person actually was abused. That's why they believe that everyone is out to scam them. Everyone's out to harm them or steal from them. Um, like, like basically, that's why they're mean because their mom probably beat them or something similar. Like, like it may not have been domestic abuse, but like something bad happened to that person and they're carrying the scars of it in their trauma. Uh, and, and that allows me to, uh, to disengage and sort of see both sides of this and realize what they're saying has nothing to do with me. Well, that's, though, that's, that's very, that's right. Yeah. But that. Okay, I, I have the rare and great fortune to have, to run a neuroscience lab and to be able to glue stuff to my head. I've traveled to Tibet. I've meditated in Cambodia. I've done ayahuasca in South America. Like, like okay, I've done my work, right? Most people don't have the time and, and effort, uh, or maybe they didn't need as much work as I did because I used to be kind of an angry, sort of weird guy. Uh, no, I'm just weird, not angry. But they... <laughs> Uh, what, what's a, you know, an average person listening to this is going, how the hell do you disengage from the abusive boss from, you know, the people who are, are trolling you over and over? Like, like, do you have a, a recipe, a, a mastery perspective on, on getting control of your own emotions when, when someone's pushing your buttons? Yes, I do. I mean, we, we could spend, uh, you know, three hours on that subject uh, alone. Um, the, the thing is, I try and tell you in mastery, and it has to do with how the, uh, the human brain works. You can master anything if you're patient and you go through a process and you take basic steps. You know, if you want to learn the bicycle and you're four years old, you know you're going to take, you're going to have to do training wheels, a tricycle. You'll get there. You'll fall a few times, but you'll get there. Mastering your emotions is no different from learning to ride a bicycle or swimming or any kind of skill. It's going to require patience, which of course is hard to develop in the beginning, um, but it's going to require going through a process and not getting so ahead of yourself. So you have to say, you have to take baby steps, you know, and I okay. have ideas in many of my books, including Mastery yeah. and in my new book, 
but how you can take these baby steps so that you learn, ah, I did this today. I was able to distance myself. I got a reward for it. Wow, okay, I can do more. And what that will mean is, um, in, a, in a, just a simple scenario, um, in a seduction-like scenario, you're just starting to date a girl and you're all anxious and insecure and your first thing is to call her right away or text her. Okay, train yourself to wait 24 hours before you call and calm yourself down and see what happens to you. A similar process, which happens to me all the time and happens a lot to other people, is the angry email or the angry whatever it is. <laughs> you're so pissed off. You're in the moment. You have no perspective. You're blowing something small into something large. Okay, wait 24 hours, and what happens? You wake up the next day and you go, wow, man, it wasn't such a big deal. What was I thinking? You learn that with time, you gain a perspective that you didn't have in yeah. the moment. Uh, and, you know, you can go through these exercises in, 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 in all sorts of ways. Um, in, in one of my books, I believe in the war book, I talk about Joseph Stalin. You think you have a bad boss Well, you try working <laughs> for Joseph Stalin where one wrong word and you're dead, okay? And I talk in the book about a famous com a composer named Dmitry Shostakovich, a great composer of music, who had to pay court to Stalin and please him and was constantly running afoul. And if he ran too afoul, he'd be sent to the labor camps and he would die. And he went through a mental strategy of, when I'm in front of Joseph Stalin, I think of him as a child. This is a four-year-old in front of me who had to sit on the toilet and his mother had to help him wipe himself, etc. Pardon my language. Um, he was potty. I don't know if he was going through this process, but basically <laughs> he demythologized him. He brought him down to the level of he's just a human being. He's not this scary, intimidating man. He was a child once. He's very insecure and allowed him to not get emotionally embroiled. Of course, he realized the danger that if he showed disrespect, he would also end up dead. So he couldn't go too far with that. But it allowed him to not get emotional in the moment. Now, we can take many ways of gimmicks to do that for the particular scenario that you're in. But you want to be taking baby steps and getting little rewards every day to see the power that you can have on a daily basis by learning to detach yourself. You don't want to be, do it from everything. You know, you have your family, you have your children or your loved ones. You also have to learn when is the moment to detach yourself, but it's a skill like anything else. It, it's one of the, the primary skills that I've trained uh, neurologically on myself. Uh, it's something we call the neurofeedback augmented reset process, where you, you sit there and you look at your brain waves and you see which things cause them to basically stop being functional. And then you're yeah. like, oh, that's what that feels like. And then there's a reset process you go through to actually like, like cut that off. Yeah. So I could learn to be non-reactive in the face of, like, like I had a board meeting once and the board member was like, I should be seeing anxiety in you right now. And, and I looked at him and said, this is anxiety. Like, like, <laughs> oh. I'm like, okay, like, we'll, just, we'll deal with whatever the situation is, right. but we don't have to deal with it with an emotional response. Like yeah. the things will work or they won't work. And, and either way, no one's going to die. Well, I find that this, uh, if it's not applicable to every situation, but this ability to give yourself 12 hours or 24 hours is, is so simple. Yeah. And you will see immediately the change within you over time when you don't react. 
and you can get other people to help you do that. Uh, you yeah. know, you can get other people to not have you send that email. I would do that with people that I consult with. It's so simple, and 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 it starts you on the path to doing to, to mastering it. For, for people listening to this who are maybe earlier in in their career. If I had known what Robert Greene just said right there about don't send the angry email, <laughs> I have lost, and I mean this, hundreds of thousands of dollars because of yeah. angry emails. Yeah. Where like I, I wouldn't have lost that job, or I, I would have gotten promoted, or you know during the the layoff, like I I wouldn't have been the one laid off. That was only eight hundred thousand in that one. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and what what happens there? For me, was I would stay up late at night because that's the time I'm a I'm, I'm a they call it Michael Bruce calls it a wolf. Like I, I get my real productive, creative stuff later at night when no one bothers you. Uh, by the way, for people who are like, oh my god, he doesn't wake up early, dude. The early bird works for the late bird, just so we get that right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, that's not always true either. Uh, so right. I I would stay up late. And I would write these emails, and and because like you, feeding trolls is kind of good. I'd maybe use a little inflammatory language. My ego was engaged. I was angry or, or thought they didn't respect me. Whatever the heck messages yeah. I was playing in my head. And then the next morning, like by the time I wake up and go to work, like there's there's fires burning everywhere, and it was right. because of my angry emails. And, and you're like, I guess I shouldn't have done that. And my mentors be like, Dave, you got to stop. But then you don't know it. Just like you said, I finally in my like mid thirties was like. I'm just not going to send angry emails. I'll just you just pick up the phone and you tell them, and then all of a sudden it's not an angry email anymore. But gods, like the advice you just offered, like like there's half a million people are going to hear this. Like don't right. send angry emails, whatever you right. do. So, and I still I still have to you know I who have been doing this for a long time I still have to go through that. I still write angry emails, and and one out of ten times I will actually send it, and I will re <laughs> and I will regret it. So it's an ongoing process. You never completely master it because you're a human, because you've got that reptilian part of the brainstem or whatever it is, or emotional creatures. You're never going to completely master it, but getting partway yeah. there is, is, is a lot. They say the, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and, and that goes yes. doubly for when you're watching that, yeah. that ego inside of you, you know, trying yeah. to rear its head in, in your emails. Now, here's another question for you. Uh, because you you studied both mastery and forty eight laws of power, uh, I believe, and and I want to know if you believe this as well. Uh, and I, I'm really curious. I believe that at our core, we're wired to be kind to each other. That when when you remove all the bad programming, all the bad programming, all of the trauma, and like you satisfy basic uh, basic needs like food, shelter, water, that people's core motivation is actually to help. Do you share that perspective? Or do you think that there's some layer of people who are like, no, I just want stuff? <laughs> well, um, it's a great essential question that um, it tells you a lot about a person. Um, we are, it, it's undeniable that we're social animals, uh, that we became who we are sitting today on a Skype phone call, um, having you know, evolved beyond uh, other primates. Um, by virtue of being social animals that know how to cooperate. And this goes back millions of years. Um, at the same time, though, as somebody who's writing a book about human nature, there is another element. Uh, there's something double uh, about the human psyche. There is an aggressive side. There is a side, um, I call it in my new book, I just use the, the I have 
symbols when I'm writing chapters. And this, this chapter is called Take, because it just sort of epitomizes to me this aspect of, the, of human nature, where we never feel like we have enough and we have to take more. And we have stories of very primitive cultures um, arriving on the island of New Zealand and destroying all of the large fauna there and eating their way through the environment and basically creating an ecological catastrophe 10,000 years ago. There's something about the human. Um, I feel like it has to do with our weakness physically compared to other animals, where we are insecure, where we never feel like we have enough, uh, an aggressive, violent edge to us um, that can make us antisocial. So at the same time that we are the masters at cooperating, there is something that was put into the machinery, a bug, that has the opposite potential. And it's the source for who we are today and why we're on the verge, perhaps, of destroying life on the planet. I don't feel like you can ignore that destructive side of human nature, where, and you cannot ignore the empathetic side of human nature. Um, and the conscious side of human nature and the ability to overcome some of these irrational animalistic type desires that we have. I think it's just that we're complex. So I would put those two elements side by side and depending on which prevails, you have a different kind of human being or a different kind of social group. A very, uh, very learned answer. How does that, how does that work when you apply, uh, you apply that kind of thinking to the different mentalities of, of power, which, okay, like people are nice, they're either power seeking or power sharing uh, versus no. mastery. Like, like you, you, you talk about mastery and power as different things. You have different books about them. Explain the difference between the two. And, and do you think that either of those are core human natures? Well, the power is a definitely a core human nature. And, yeah. uh, and, and people have written books, um, about chimpanzees and how Machiavellian they are. And you could probably take six of the 48 laws and say, show that chimpanzees actually use these <laughs> laws of power. I'm, I'm serious about that. Never yeah, actually the master yeah. is... is um, so it's definitely a, a wired into us. We are a Machiavellian animal and our primate ancestors, um, particularly chimpanzees, are very Machiavellian. And we are also the creature that knows how to master things. They're just different sides of the, of, the, of, the, of the psyche. I just try to tell people we live in a complex world where um, you have to know how to be social and political. Now, I interviewed uh, Paul Graham for Mastery. I know you're probably familiar with Paul Graham. Mm -hmm. And he uh, is someone who's obviously become very powerful and he, so explain for, for our listeners who may not know who Paul Graham is. I, I just realized to be polite to them in case someone doesn't know. Well, originally in the 90s, he invented the first kind of place to shop on the internet, which uh, he sold to Yahoo and made a, quite a lot of money. Um, and then he sort of retired and became one of the first really popular bloggers in Silicon Valley and writes a lot about Mm -hmm. power and other and wealth and other interesting issues. And then he started Y Combinator uh, about, what, 10 years ago? I don't know how yeah, long ago. Yeah, it's about right. Um, which he's sold and is no longer involved in. I don't know what his latest ventures. I interviewed him for Mastery about five years ago. Um, 
and Y Combinator is the sort of ultimate uh, incubator school school for entrepreneurs, um, mm-hmm. in which he teaches you how to make a brilliant startup, and in the in return, if it works, he gets a share of of whatever you create, and it's he's is worth billions of dollars, and he sold it to, or I think Sam Alt. Altman is the now the new CEO. Yeah. Anyway, so he's he's a brilliant guy, and he was originally a hacker. Uh, studied computer programming, mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, all that. Um, brilliant, brilliant hacker, computer programming guy. Anyway, Paul Graham is terrible at the political side of, of stuff. He admits it. He hates it. He he loved the he read the Forty Eight Laws of Power, but he says he just hated it. He hated politics. It was why he couldn't be in academia. It was ruining his career. He just wanted mm-hmm. to be by himself. When he and he knows it, he knows that it's a weakness of his. And you can't survive even in Silicon Valley if even with just your computing skills if you yeah. can't get along with people. And so, what does he do? Well, his hack is he depends on his wife. His wife <laughs> exactly. is is actually brilliant at dealing with people. She's very sympathetic, very empathetic person. And he lets her handle it all. But the interesting thing is he knows that that's his weakness and he covered for his weakness. So you cannot escape the social element. You need the 48 laws of power. But on the other hand, if that's the only thing you read or follow, you're going to be a con artist. Because all you deal with in life is, mm-hmm. is illusion, is creating the illusion of power. You know how to make yourself look big and greater you use unpredictability, law 17 or so, which is kind of Trump's, Donald Trump's law, <laughs> uh, the, kind of the power of being unpredictable and how it puts pe- intimidates people. You can be good at all these things, but there's an, it's an all illusion, really. If it's yeah. not based on anything real, you have no skill, you have no talent, you have no creative energy, it, it, it won't get you ultimately very far. So yeah. mastery is why I, cr- I created that because I feel like a lot of young people have lost connection to the wisdom that the brain actually kind of grounds you in, the brain itself, how we learn, how we develop skills, and the power that you get once you reach a level of 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 hours is very, very real. The power of a Bobby Fischer compared to someone who's just starting out playing chess is is unbelievable. Think of the potential of the human brain when you get to that 20,000 hour point. So I wanted to cover that subject so people didn't get the impression that me, Robert Greene, I believe it's all about power and politics and bullshit. No, you really do need to master whatever it is that, you're, that you do. That, that said, if, if you want to become a master of, of your craft, uh, if you don't know the 48 laws of power, it'll take you a lot longer to become a master because people will keep throwing stuff in front of you, speed bumps that appear for no reason you perceive. And I, I never consciously used the 48 laws of power. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I might have accidentally done it, but like I, I don't use those. But as an awareness tool to know when you're being yeah. played, yeah. oh my God, this was like a firewall for me uh, sociologically. And, and like... Uh, like uh, Paul Graham there, I didn't natively have uh, the social skills. I was 300 pounds. I had cognitive oh. fatigue during some of this. Uh, that's that hacking the human body thing. Losing 100 pounds was cool. And then uh, uh, raising my IQ and, and all that stuff. But 
I've got a lot more social skills. I actually make eye contact, all that kind of stuff now. I used to be like Asperger's directional stuff. Yeah. So even to this day, there's some social skills that I'm just not going to think about. So I have right. a really good executive admin and I have a socially aware wife. Right, and right, right. What I've, <laughs> what I've learned as an entrepreneur is, look, if there's stuff that doesn't come natively to you, you need very basic proficiency and you yes. can hire the skills. Yeah. So, you know, if you receive yep. a gift from me and you may or may not have, it's actually not for me. And I'm sorry, anyone who's received a gift from me, I probably signed the book, but I didn't think to send it because gift giving isn't my love language to quote the right. five love languages. I don't even think right. about that, but I know I'm supposed to do it. So I have someone I who see. helps me think about it for you. I right? see. And that's not well, a weakness, right? right. Uh, I, that's actually a strength. But if we're going back to our conversation about ego and all, yeah. a lot of people, especially as they're working to become masters, they spend so much energy focusing mm-hmm. on their weaknesses instead of their strengths. Yeah. What does your take on mastery have to do with, like, how do you achieve balance between not being a total idiot in this perspective versus being a rock star in this perspective? Well, so I, you know, I have six chapters in mastery, um, and chapter four is on social intelligence. And I'm telling the reader that social intelligence is a skill that you must develop or you're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a couple other skills, such as your, your apprenticeship and your ability to work with a mentor. It is one among three things that you must absolutely learn to be proficient at also knowing your career what is the can i can can i pause you for a second there to just double down on that one for listeners there's a guy some people have heard of mark andreessen so if you're our age you all know who mark is mark wrote the very first web browser okay yeah i was the first guy to sell anything over the internet and i did that before mark wrote the first web browser and i was Uh a tech journalist and i reviewed his browser versus the netscape 1.0 Okay, Mark Andreessen is worth like a kabillion dollars. I am not very economically successful by comparison. And in fact, yeah. I've, I've come, I've lost my fortune when I was that age, and have worked for a paycheck ever since. I still have a paycheck because I have investors, right? The difference between Mark Andreessen and me back then is that I was arrogant and stupid, uh, and there's no way I would have listened to a mentor or I would right. have apprenticed anywhere because I already okay. knew everything. And Mark walked over to Jim Clark. In Silicon Valley, the guy who ran Sun Microsystems, one of the big computing companies that's now defunct because Oracle bought them, and was like, hey, Jim, can you tell me how to do this? And so Mark, in his great wisdom, like created all this stuff because he would take advice from the masters. And because I was an arrogant punk with too much ego, I wouldn't. And the difference is hundreds of times yeah. uh, a difference in economic output. So, so just learn from the lessons that Robert's talking about right here. Learn from the mistakes I've made. <laughs> like this, that rule matters. Anyway, keep going. I just want to well, make sure yeah. that's really clear. Yeah. So, um, I'm trying to tell you, uh, hopefully you'll read the whole book before you go out and do whatever you're going to be doing. This is mastery, career. right? The book mastery. you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. I wrote a whole chapter on social intelligence within mastery saying that the the brain is 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 an entire organ there aren't although it's a, it's a controversial subject but there aren't separate components for mastering computer programming and mastering how to deal with people in fact they're all intertwined yeah. interconnected and so your ability to be social to get along with people to have empathy 
actually has a profound impact on your ability to solve everyday problems. Yeah. The, the process of getting inside another person and thinking, well, what is going on in their mind is almost a similar process to, hmm, there's something in the atmosphere, um, a particular chemical compound, and I want to solve acid or whatever it is. It's a very similar mental process of putting yourself inside a phenomenon and thinking, thinking through it. Um, the brain is an interconnected organ. So you need to be able to have basic social skills and social intelligence no matter what level you're at. Some people, it comes naturally to. Jessica Livingston, Paul Graham's wife, your wife, they don't really need to be bothering about social intelligence. A lot of women are like this. Yeah. They're good at it. They know it. It's in their blood. So they can skip chapter four. <laughs> other people other people are brilliant hackers and can learn the hell out of something, have zero social skills. They need to spend a lot more time on chapter four. Um, the great polymaths that I was fascinated with, people like da Vinci, you, I think you'd have to consider Benjamin Franklin one of the great uh, polymaths, um, were brilliant at the social game. Uh, da Vinci was a was a most charming man anyone ever met. Benjamin Franklin was master at human psychology. He had to learn it. He didn't start out brilliant at it. He realized he was actually quite weak, and he trained himself to be a, a credible observer of people and to just basically study and witness and observe people in action. So um, it's a skill. You learn the skill by practicing it. To ignore the social or political game is extremely dangerous as you discovered in your life. Um, and if you're someone starting out, you're 22 years old and you're about to enter a, a, a career or a job, you have to practice both of them. Uh, even if you're uh, naturally gifted, you still, at the social game, you still have to practice them. So when you're starting your career, you're spending a lot of time working on your skills whatever those skills are, and you're observing the people around you. You're observing the social dynamic. You're observing the power dynamic. You look at the boss and you say, why did this man or woman get to that place? What's their characteristics? What is the culture of the place where I'm working at? Do they value assertiveness or do they value cooperation? What is the, the, the psychology of the people involved as they interconnect with each other? You want to be alive and sensitive to that, as sensitive as you are to the actual skills that you're having to learn, whether it's writing, you know, copy or, or hacking or whatever. That's, that's, that's how I've basically structured mastery. And, and beware, woe to you if you ignore social intelligence. There's a, a kind of a hack for that, at least the way I picked up a lot of that, in addition to just you know personal development kind of stuff. I picked up on the importance of this after getting my ass handed to me a few times in my career in, in my, my 20s. And I, I started going to a business networking meetup that happened every Thursday night on the Stanford campus at this thing called the Stanford Barn. This was like for early... Uh, I don't think they'd invented the word e-commerce yet. We still call ourselves the Web Guild. This is like before webmasters were a thing. Now that they're mostly gone, and um, <laughs> we'd get together every Thursday. And there were these like business people, and I'd show up. And I'm like this kind of fat engineering guy. Don't know how to dress. I'm like yeah. t-shirts. Okay, I, I don't understand any of this stuff. And I did this for two years every Thursday night, give or take. 
just because it was like watching like a cultural anthropologist I was watching these people I had no clue and finally I learned how to like interact and not just stand there and eat all the grapes right right it's it it didn't come at all naturally but if I hadn't done that I don't think I could function the way I do today because for me that was remedial learning just to get up to like kindergarten level and I think a lot of people listening who who don't understand or or even look down on schmoozing or networking or things like that no like it's like the way bees dance they wiggle their butts and they signal to each other humans have some of that it's just harder to see Oh, that's a, you bring up a very good point. I should have, I, I should have said that earlier. Um, it is almost like a, a, a basic a skill that you must develop. It's almost like when we were talking about waiting to, before you send that angry email. Simple exposure to social situations is how you're going to start developing the skill. So if you spend a lot of time alone, um, that skill atrophies. Uh, the virtual version of it isn't good enough. Um, eye contact isn't the same on a computer as it is in in, live, in flesh and blood. Um, you need to be out there doing what you did in your in your in, intuitive wisdom. There is simply interacting with people, is going to more social situations, uh, observing people, absorbing their energy, forcing yourself to interact. Uh, if you're in an office, that's how you practice the skill: is in actual, real interactions not on the computer, not on Facebook, etc. So you bring up a very good point. Probably the most essential thing that you can do is actually the more social interactions you have, the more the skill will start naturally developing. What are your other top techniques for developing mastery? Well, um, mastery begins chapter one with one very simple thing and if you don't do chapter one there's no hope for you uh, I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> well it's it's true uh, and that is choosing uh, the right path the right career what I call your life's task I call it your life's task uh, in, it, it's the one moment where I might wax a little poetic but um, you're you're a very a unique person you're 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 set of molecules your dna is there's nobody else like you ever will ever exist or has ever existed there's something unique about uh what you're interested in what i, I call your 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 primal inclinations the subjects that you're inclined to when you were three four or five years old you want to be able to work within that kind of that basic strength that you have the brain learns at a much higher rate when you're emotionally engaged, when you want to learn, when uh, it's something that excites you. If it's something that you have to learn, you absorb one-tenth of the information that you have when you are alive and tense and, man, I really want to learn this because I love this subject. So if you choose a career, the typical scenario is you listen to your parents and your friends and you go to law school because you know that's going to make a lot of money, but it's not what you love, um, you can get pretty far, uh, but you're never going to get to mastery, and you're never going to learn at the rate that you ha- that an Einstein learned when he realized at a very early age that he was obsessed with physics and obsessed with the question of relativity, and spent day and night and day and night thinking about one particular problem. You're never going to learn at that optimum rate uh, by choosing something that you don't love. So. Mastery begins and ends with that, because if you 
Find what it is. And the problem with a lot of people is they don't know what that is. Finding what that is and creating the perfect niche for yourself kind of makes all the other things will sort of happen in an organic way. It will help you to learn some of the things I discuss in the book, such as the importance of the apprenticeship phase, the importance of working with a, a mentor, uh, you know, etc. But if you don't know who you are, you don't know what you love, you don't know what you're good at, it's, you're never going to get there. You know, and I give many, many examples of how to find it and of people in history who found it in a, in a strange way. You know, it's not like you wake up and go, ah, I meant to write the 48 Laws of Power. Life doesn't work like that. It's a process. And, and you're discovering what you hate. You're discovering the kind of jobs you don't want to do. You're discovering the sort of writing that doesn't appeal to you. And then eventually, if you're alert and self-aware, you'll discover it. But that's kind of like the, the gist of it. And, and, and um, you, you don't find what, and, and it can happen later in life. It doesn't necessarily have to happen in your 20s. It's better if it happens in your 20s because when you're younger, you're more creative and more energetic. But it can happen in your 30s or 40s. I didn't start writing The 48 Laws of Power until I was 37. So it took me a, a, a while to figure out what, I, what my life's task was. Well, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you decided to do that because uh -huh. uh, that was a, a really impactful book. I think you sold one and a half or 1.2 million copies or something. Oh, we're, we're getting closer to 2 million now. Oh, to 2. So there you go. And that, that's, yeah. that's well-deserved. And, and just yeah. uh, for people listening, you guys have heard me interview 350 experts, uh, people, maverick scientists, uh, crazy geniuses, uh, authors, uh, uh, teachers, uh, celebrities, uh, a few of them, and of all of them, if there's only a few books you're going to read, I'm telling you, wow. pick a couple of Robert's books. And Robert, this wow. is not just going to show. Like this is actually, you know, my my genuine belief. There, you really oh. want to want to change the trajectory of what's going to happen in your life over the next hundred years. And yes, if you're young, you have a pretty good chance of living a hundred years from however old you are today. Thank yeah. you, technology. Uh, so, like, do this. Read mastery. Read the Forty Eight Laws of Power. Know when you're being played. Uh, yeah. Like that—that is—it's it's just priceless. Like biohacking is cool. Ha you know, having cells that work is really important, so you have willpower to apply the, the skills for mastery and all that kind of stuff. But if you're just walking into invisible walls all the time, you don't know it. It sucks. And I—I wow. I only say that from uh, from personal experience. So you really helped me see some of those walls. So I'm I'm wow. actually just like full of gratitude that I get to interview wow. you because like how cool wow. is that? So, I, well, I have one you. more question for you. Oh, you're so welcome. Sure. Final question I've asked every guest on the show. And it's if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, Look, I want to be better at everything I do. Like I want to kick ass at life. What are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you do? How would you distill all of this knowledge you have? I would say lower your expectations a little bit. <laughs> be learn. <laughs> Don't try for that. That's 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 just a little better. <laughs> that's the twenty-year-old who thinks that he or she can just be great at everything, and 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 you can't because it's not how it's not how we're wired. So I want you that's to awesome. scale down. Um, I, I'm writing a chapter in my new book. Um, you know, it's the laws of human nature, and each chapter deals with kind of a, a slightly negative quality in human nature. And the chapter mm -hmm. I'm finishing now is on grandiosity. Uh, 
And I, I, at the end of the chapter, I talk about practical grandiosity, how to be grandiose, but in a practical way. And the practical way is to focus on something simple, develop, concentrate, concentrate your energies. When the mind is concentrated and focused, it has immense powers. When it's diffused and distracted and thinks it can accomplish 80 things, it's useless. You, you neutralize all of the powers of the brain that you were born with. So, so f- f- you're saying focus on some things. Yes. Okay. I want you, when you're 20, 22, that, that great, wonderful age, to, to say, um, I'm going to be absolutely brilliant at this one thing. I'm going to master this one thing. And in mastering this one thing, it will open up like, you know, like the, the lotus flower image in Buddhism. It will open up to five or 10 or 20 other things. Paul Graham, all he mastered when he was 21, 22 was programming. He was just an absolute great programmer. He also studied painting. I don't know why he was interested in art. It was a sort of a second thing. And then, you know, years went by and he didn't know what he wanted to do and he let time go by and he was kind of a little bit lost and then he heard an ad on the radio he was painting in a loft in new york when he thought he was going to be a painter he heard an ad on the radio for netscape and how netscape was going to be the new frontier and people were going to buy things on the internet he goes shit man i'm sitting here barely making a living painting i can make a fortune and all of that programming skills that he developed in his 20s now he could shift and do something that he never thought of when he was 23, but he had the skill to exploit this new frontier. You want to have a basic skill that you can now exploit for whatever it is that's going to come upon, uh, upon you in five years where you can suddenly seize the, some great opportunity. Once you learn that basic skill, okay, learn a second one if you want. Learn a third one. Don't go on until you've actually first mastered that first one. And learn to control your, your impatience. Master yourself. If I'm going to give you an advice, it's master yourself. Yourself, without any help, is someone who's impatient, insecure. You're like a four-year-old that's <laughs> let out into the world of adults. You don't have what is necessary to succeed because you have no control over yourself. You think you're great, and you're not great. You have no skill. You have no experience. You have no knowledge. Get over it, okay? You. No, you I, I love this, man. So, someone had to say it. Uh, this is cool. Uh, you need to master yourself. You need to overcome all of these things that you think you're so great at, and you're not. So, if you're going to learn one thing, it's going to you're going to control your impatience. You're going to control your grandiosity. You're going to control, you know, all the other things, your emotions that tend to wreak havoc in, 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 the, in the office, wherever. And all the other things that you want, you'll get in your 30s or 40s. But if you start off in, when you're 21, it's like, I'm going to get everything, man. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer the world. I'm going to bust it. I'm going to whatever it is. Yeah, probably won't get very far. But if you start focusing on one thing and you're patient and you kind of love it, and you're excited, when you're in your 30s, that organically will happen to you. Believe me. It's hap- I have story after story of people in history and people I interviewed for mastery. It's the path that will lead you to something. I know it's not what you want to hear. You want to hear 
some formula for getting everything you want and being happy, but it, it doesn't exist. It, it takes work. It takes work. Very well said. Did we get three in there? I think that was three. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying I'm to sorry. count, but that, that was at least three, and, and it was all, oh, yeah. it was all great yeah. wisdom. And, oh, yeah. uh, do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 57. 57. So you've got, uh, so I'm 44, so you've got more than a decade on me. Uh, I do. So you've, you've lived more, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that I didn't appreciate when I was young is the wisdom of elders, and I think you talk about that a lot in Mastery. Yeah. Um, and I actually learned that because I started running an anti-aging nonprofit group in Palo Alto called the Silicon Valley Health Institute. Uh-huh. People on my board of directors were 88 years old. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and wow, yeah. you're like, these people are so much better than I am at almost everything. And it's the value of like experience and like you said, you know, uh, falling down and exposure and things like that. So uh, what, what yeah. profound advice, Robert. Um, even better than I hoped that, that you'd that, Oh, that you'd, wow. You'd that's, that's, so. good. that's good to hear. So thanks so much for being on Bulletproof Radio. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, for listeners, you, you might not know this. If you go to the Bulletproof website, blog.bulletproof.com, there's transcripts for all of Bulletproof Radio. So you can actually download this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to list all of Robert's books on there as links. And what I want you to do is just close your eyes and click one of the links. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> It'll take you to Amazon and read that book if you haven't read any of them. Uh, I would say maybe The Art of Seduction is either more or less interesting to you, but if you're married with kids like I am, trust me, The Art of Seduction might be more important to you than it is when you're 22 <laughs> and dating. I'm, I'm just saying, you guys have Tinder, all right? I don't. So. <laughs> yes, right. But it's all, The Art of Seduction is also about uh, social seduction. It is. And it political is. seduction and marketing seduction. It's all the same. Very well said. Well, I, uh, when your next book comes out, I hope to have you back on Bulletproof Radio. I would love that. I would love The week that. of launch, we'll make sure everyone listening hears about the book. Because uh-huh. honestly, you are one of, and, and I'm, I'm just, it's not like I'm kissing your ass, but I'm not. Like, in, in my experience of reading a lot of personal growth, which isn't really your category, but a lot of other stuff, like, you have provided more wisdom with more rigor than most other authors I've come well, across. Well, that's a, that's a so, very nice, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah. So. A full endorsement from Bulletproof on Robert wow. Greene's writing. Wow. You guys should read all of it. So, Robert, wow, thank you. I look forward to our next conversation. Oh, me too, Dave. Thank you. That was great. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.